This week, we explore what appears to be the perfect marriage for over 30 years until Adam's heart condition is discovered. Years of surgical and pharmaceutical treatments definitely change his personality and may have caused him to do some things he wouldn't normally do. This all takes a toll on his marriage to Laura, but she sticks by him until after he returns to health and new discoveries come to light. Welcome to My Crazy Divorce. I'm a failure as a husband. I'm a failure as a man. It's just, I'm beautiful and I'm bright and I deserve better. It's a great day, I'm feeling good. Oh, the possibilities of what I could. Oh, doing the world at my fingertips. My imagination brings a smile up to my lips. Hello and welcome to another episode of My Crazy Divorce. I'm your host, Tom Milligan. When Laura first applied to be on the show, I almost said no. Not because the story isn't crazy. Trust me, this story is batshit level crazy. But because of how it ends. I just wasn't sure how I felt about it, but ultimately decided to let you guys decide how you feel about it. And I asked her to come on the show. What you're about to hear is a condensed version of our interview, which lasted for over four hours. We've tried to keep the meat of the story, but we also try to keep the show to less than two hours. I hope we've done her story justice today. As I said a minute ago, Laura applied to be a guest on the show. And so can you. If you have a crazy divorce story, just go to MyCrazyDivorce.com right now and click on the Apply to Be a Guest button. I promise we'll have a great time getting to know each other and recording the show. If you're a long-time listener, you already know this, but if you're new here, I need to make sure you know that I'm not an attorney or a therapist, so please don't consider anything said on this show to be legal or therapeutic advice. And finally, before we get to the interview, be sure to stick around after Laura's story to hear what Leanne has to say. Remember, Leanne is a psychologist. I'll bet she has a field day on this one. Okay, with all the housekeeping out of the way, let's meet Laura. Laura, I am so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you. It's exciting. When we first spoke, you told me that you've binged, listened to every one of our episodes, which I'm flattered. That's exciting. I'm glad you're a fan. Tell us about Younger, Laura. My family came from Tipperary, Ireland, and they ended up down here south of Chicago, down in Bloomington, different areas down there. And eventually they came up here. My grandfather worked at the jail over here, Joliet Prison. My mother and my aunt grew up together and went to all Catholic schools, of course. We're Irish Catholic all the way through. And in about 1955, my mother was about 21 years old and she got pregnant unexpectedly. Oh, So what happened is back in those days, especially with the Irish, you just didn't reveal things like that back then. Right. Yeah, you got to hide it. It was totally in the closet. So they sent my mother to Misericordia. And back in those days, they took expecting mothers. Now, I have to tell you, my mother, she never told them her real name, anything. She So she had me and she was putting me up for adoption. So in those days, you didn't see the child. They just took you away. Right. 
And I was born at the time, it's no longer there, Weiss Hospital, it was called. And so I went into foster care. And about six months later, my grandmother and grandfather couldn't stand it. They had my mother when they were older, so they were like 56 and 58. And to legally adopt, you had to be 55 and lower in those days. They actually changed their birth certificates and (laughs) really, and they went and they adopted me. Your grandparents falsified their documents so that they could adopt you. Yes. And brought me back to their home where my mother was living. So you became your mother's sister. Yes, yes. So at the time, my mother had worked for a Pullman Bank at the time, but they had across the street, they were just coming out with credit cards back then. This uh-huh. is 1955. So they had a whole separate building for that. And in the meantime, she was talking to this guy, of course, at work and explain her story like somebody to cry on their shoulder and all that. I got to say, it's I'm the skeleton in the closet, seriously. And my aunt lived across the street and she would come home from work and she worked for General Motors at the time and get off the bus and grab me, help her mother take care of me. And I don't really even know if my mother really took care of me, to be honest with you. I don't know anything as far as that went. If she, I would say no. It wasn't like she bonded with me. Let's put it that way. From there, about two and a half years later, my mother comes home. And says, I'm married. And everybody's, wow. going, and everybody's going, well, who are you married to? Well, remember that guy I was telling you back where she was working and she was crying on his shoulder? Now, he's a guy that's in the process of a divorce. He had a daughter in 1950. He really didn't want to get divorced. He was also a Catholic. And his sister was a nun. Now they wanted to take me. My mother and this guy wanted to take me. And they're all like, what are you talking about? Very, They were very upset. And my dad's other daughter would come like on the weekends. I always remember chaos in that house. I just always remember chaos, even as a little girl. So about four years old, this man wanted to adopt me. And remember, I told you my mother flubbed all her records going into Misericordia? Yep. Never said who she was. So she had to rewrite the state and say that she falsified all the documents. And now she and this man had to adopt me. Are you keeping because up? Because you were legally adopted by your grandparents. So they were officially your mom and dad. Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. He adopted me and oh, they didn't get along. Oh my gosh. It was was fighting and screaming. And I always felt like I was the monkey in the middle. Mm. And sure enough, I was, but I didn't really understand it when I was young. So what had happened was my mother really didn't confess who the real father was. It was the big secret. Everybody, it's all mysterious. They're going back and forth from one family to the other. They're having meetings together to try to get my mother to confess this. So then it goes back. They think that my father is the real father. And back in those days, I know, they didn't have DNA. 
So they had to go by the blood test. So it turns out, of course, he was not my father. Just a terrible relationship, drunk, pounding on one another. It was terrible. So about 1965, I'm nine years old. And uh, next thing I know is my mother's taking me out of the house. We go to this garden apartment. It's like a basement apartment. Terrible. And she doesn't let me see my father for a year. So this is like my second, third abandonment. The second one is, of course, they took me from my grandparents. Okay, so we're still living in the same neighborhood. And then I'm noticing my dad is like stalking me. Like he's at the school looking at me. He's, oh yeah, he's over here looking at me. He's, you know. And how old are you at this point? Nine. Okay. So old enough to remember this for sure. Oh, absolutely. I could see him. But you know what? I mean, he wasn't doing anything wrong. He just wanted to see me. Yeah. You're his daughter. So they get divorced then. And my mother and I moved back into the city because we were in the suburbs. We moved back into the city, into Chicago. So my mother, she sent me to the public school. I graduate from there. And of course, now my dad's determined I have to go to an all-girls Catholic school. Beginning of sophomore year. And I meet this guy. We went to all the dances, prom, just everything. So he, in senior year, had transferred out. He goes to this new school and he meets somebody else. Well, then I'm devastated here. I feel like I'm abandoned again. And then freshman year of college, we end up going to the same school. So we got back together. Okay. Well, that didn't last long, maybe a semester or two, whatever. So I'm devastated. I'm devastated. So we're talking 1975 here now. I'm 19. So my cousin says to me, I want to fix you up with somebody. I go to her house. And so these two guys come up, one that she was going to go out with. And this other one, we'll call him Adam. How's that? We go on that date. Oh, yeah, it's fun. It's nice. After that night... He calls me, and so does that other guy that she went with. Oh, look at you, Laura. (laughs) Yeah, it got me in trouble there. I go out with both of them, and my family doesn't like this other guy, but they like Adam. Okay. Because remember, this is my cousin, and so they, my dad would go over there, and so my dad was starting to hear all the tweets. So anyway, now this is 1975. So I get real involved with the other guy. And I start to live with him and all that. You know what I mean? Not really totally, but I'm there all the time. So the other one, Adam, he's kind of like, I guess, upset about this. And I'm like, okay, fine and dandy, whatever. So it turns out, Let's fast forward it just a little bit, not too much, maybe 1976 now. And it really wasn't working out with the other one. So I get together with Adam. We're dating. We're not really. You're not exclusive. You're not an item. But everybody knows that we're together. We're going out. We're going to the bars. See, back in my day, the age changed to go to the bars at 19 years old. Oh, 
Yeah. It was for a short time. I don't know if you even heard about it, but it was like for about three years, they changed it to 19. And oh boy, party my butt off. You can imagine. <laughs> no, I didn't hear about that. I grew up in Utah. Yeah, they probably it. put those four years and those three years and tacked them onto the people in Utah. So you had to be 25 in Utah or something. So anyway, and so we would go and he'd show up at the bars. And at this point now I'm working at a bank and there he would show up there. He was kind of like my father, the stalker, but he kind of wore on me. I kind of liked him then. I was like, okay, fine and dandy. So like we would go down to Florida, like we'd get in the car and just take off and end up on Daytona beach at sunrise and just have a good time. So it gets to be about 1979 now. And now we decide we're going to make a commitment basically. So we did. He bought a condo We picked it out together. He bought it, not me. And we moved in together and all was going wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. So maybe a year and a half later, we decide we're going to get married. Okay. And once again, we decided sitting on the couch. It wasn't like an engagement. We sat down and said, hey, well, what do you think of this? And eventually we got there with the ring and all that, but we actually mutually agreed on it. So eight months later, we were married. I think that's the right way to do it. The idea of buying a ring and kneeling down and proposing, hopefully by the time you've purchased the ring and had that proposal, you've had a discussion and you've already agreed to get married. But when I see these videos on TikTok and stuff, people that seem genuinely surprised that they're being proposed to, like, wow, that's to me, that's crazy. I have to assume that Adam is the going to be the guy that we're talking about the divorce from here uh, over the next little bit. So I want to know a little bit more about him. Where did he grow up? Let's hear about his childhood. Uh, he was born in 1954 and uh, grew up with a, a brother and sister. His parents' relationship, let's just put it this way, the dad, he was a cheater. The dad was a cheater. Hmm. Even up to the time he really died. And he died at 54 years old. We would go on date. Now, I have to tell you, that was one thing that was not in my family. Didn't even know anything about infidelity. I really didn't. But we, like I said, we would be going out maybe to the bar. Next thing, he's pulling into where his parents would hang out. Checking the parking lots out here, checking the parking lots out there. And I knew what he was doing. He was seeing where his father was, where his mother was, who was cheating on who, whatever. But yet when they were together, it acted like just a normal little family. You just don't realize how your lives come back to haunt you. What's about religion and his family? Mom and dad are screwing around, but were they religious at all? Catholic, yes. Like participating Catholics? A lot of people say they're Catholic, but that doesn't mean they do anything about it. Uh, Yeah, they would go to church on Sunday, and my husband went to Catholic grammar school for a while. He's an Italian Catholic. Italian Catholic. You're Irish Catholic. He's Italian Catholic. Now, when you grew up, you said that your mom put you in public school despite your dad. Did religion take a backseat in your life after that, or did you... Oh, no, my father wouldn't let that. Once I did start seeing him again after that year, I would go every weekend, every other weekend, spending the night. I would see my sister, and we would go to church. 
My aunt was a nun. It was very much, I went to Catholic high school. Yeah, we were totally Catholic. Well, when you got married on April 11th, 1981, you were married, I assume, then in a very big Catholic church with a whole bunch of Catholic people around. It was a big wedding. and Yes, it was. Yes. So you didn't do a big engagement thing, but you did a big wedding, I assume. Yes, yes. So we've covered like both youths and childhood we're we've covered the courtship and the engagement which was entirely romantic and yes. then the the wedding itself so now you're married people yes and usually the way i think about these things is that either it started out great and then went totally shitty or it started out shitty and got worse so no. let's hear about your wedding and we went to jamaica for our honeymoon he nice. had gotten a honeymoon. That was a culture shock for me. He was very protective. Nude beaches. I didn't know anything about nude beaches. And my husband's like, come on, let's go. And I'm like, no, I went though. I eventually went. So, oh, wow. Look at you. Yeah, yeah, we went. And so came back. Wonderful. We had a great time. So I'm 24 when I get married. So about 26, 27, once again, we talk and we decide we're going to have kids now. So I wasn't getting pregnant right away. So I had to, because I was on the pill, it had taken the hormones and shuffled them around. So I went down to a specialist downtown and they straightened it out. And, but I had tried to get pregnant from 26 to 29 years old. I finally get pregnant at 29 years old and all is great. We, but we're still going out partying. We're still having the good old time. And now Michael Jackson's in and all. It's, just, it's a lot of fun. It was, it was like almost too good to be true, really. It was fun. And I just grew to love him more and more every day. Here I go. Yeah. <laughs> so, it never gets any easier, does it? Oh, God. It goes way worse. So anyway... I have my first daughter in 1985 then. Now, remember, we get married in 81. Now it's 85, and I have my daughter. And all is great. We're still in the condo, okay, that my husband had bought. Well, then by then, now we're saying, now we got to buy a house. So we move about 10 blocks down. We buy a house. And I'm in love with this child. It's just everything I ever wanted. Him too. And... So about two years later, I get pregnant on my own. No big deal. We didn't plan it. but And I have a son then, 1988. So once again. And then in the meantime here, I say anything with an engine on its ass. Well, we had boats. And my husband now became a racer of boats. Oh. Now he's racing boats at 110 miles per hour. What did you both do for a living this but well, those are not cheap things. Well, he had actually worked for Commonwealth Edison, which is the electric company here, which was good. And I sold real estate. Okay. But my husband always did a lot. He was a workaholic. That's mm. what he was. Instead of an alcoholic or whatever, you always got to have some kind of something wrong, right? So he's a workaholic, which is fine. I respected that of him because he wanted things. And he knew he always brought the check home to me every two weeks, whenever it came in, never had to worry about a thing, never financially had to worry at all. 
He would do whatever it took. So we never had any kind of financial problems. And I'm working less and less because now I'm pregnant for the third time. They know what causes that now, Laura. (laughs) So I have her 88 and 91. So I have one in 85, 88, and 91. I have a daughter. Now, she really wasn't expected. I figure I had a girl and a boy and, oh, wow, right? I can remember my husband and I were going down to a party in Peoria and I'm like, something, I might have cancer. Something's wrong here. He goes, well, could you be pregnant? And I'm like, no, (laughs) (laughs) no, yes. (laughs) So wonderful. It's still all fine and dandy. So we have her and everything's great. 91, about 1995, about five, we start talking again. And now we want to build like a dream home. Okay. And so we go out and we look for property and we come way out here. It's like farm country out here. And we loved it. We loved the corn. We loved the sunsets. We just loved everything about it. 1996, we bought an acre and a half out here, which I still live on. And between... 96, 97, we contract the house out ourselves because my husband's in the field where now he knows people. We didn't even need a contractor because I sold real estate. I Here we are. Go down the list and you get everything done. Foundation, you just go down the line. So we did. We built this beautiful home and we moved out here. It took us, and it took us six months. It only took us six months to build this house. We really pound the pavement. We were good. We were a great team. And he gets out of the racing of the boats because now he's got three kids. He's Now he's into snowmobiling. Okay. So now we're snowmobiling. We're snowmobiling with the kids. We're out here in the country. We've got four wheelers and snowmobiles and we're having a great time. And 2003, so let's fast forward. Everything's great. So 1981, we get married. Now it's 2003. And my husband's starting to get sick. He's 49 years old. So one day I have to rush him to the hospital. He can't breathe. They get him in the hospital. It's the end of the night. And still they don't, they really can't put anything in stone. And I'm walking out to the uh, parking lot. And now the doctor we have, we've had since I was 26 years old, the same doctor, right? Yeah. So he walks out in the parking lot and he says, he's in heart failure. I'm like, oh, 49 years old. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. So they hurry up and they do a pacemaker defibrillator. His heart's beating 200 times per minute. That's fast. And they're doing the defibrillator. They've got him and just blood is going everywhere. And so he wakes up and the doctor looks at him and says, you're going to need a heart transplant. This is like where it all starts now. He's just not his normal self. And why would you be? Yeah. You just face your own mortality probably for the first time ever. Right. Exactly. And you're on tons of pills He's delusional because the oxygen wasn't getting to the brain correctly and all that. But I never want to treat him any different. In my mind, I never want to treat him any different, of course. They just pump him along. 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007. And 
eight, nine, well, 10 comes and we're married 30 years now. Yeah. I had already planned a trip to Puerto Rico. I did that, paid for it the whole nine years. And now he goes back into the hospital and they're like, now we're getting close to the heart transplant. And I'm like, well, should I cancel this trip? Because we're going to Mexico. What if something happens? Where do I go to? And they said, they pulled me inside and said, go ahead and go because this may be his last trip. He's about 55 years old at this time. They say that he needs an LVAD. And I know you and I talked about that. What they do is they actually take a pump. They do open heart surgery and take a pump, attach it to your heart and make a hole in your stomach. And the line to this pump comes out your stomach and you walk around with like a backpack of batteries. This is now pumping your heart because your heart, remember heart failure? You're not, your heart's not pumping by itself anymore. 2010. So we go on this trip and I was a nervous wreck. We still enjoyed ourselves, but once again, now he's really not like himself. So he comes back and he's still on the job. He still goes to work. And now at this point, they're kind of, it's kind of like he's in the retirement zone of the company. 2011 comes, it's Thanksgiving. We're going to go in that weekend after and he's going to have this LVAD put in. Now, remember, this is open heart surgery. This is big surgery. Yeah, especially 15 years ago or whatever, and it still is. Took him 11 hours to do it, and they came back and said, he said he only had about three months to live. That was it. He only had about three months to live if they wouldn't have put that in. You could have gotten that LVAD and died there. You could have died a month later, two months later. Once again, this is what's pumping the blood through your system. So... Now we have to look for a donor, right? Now, my husband is six foot four and a half, 275 pounds. He's a big man. You can't take a small person. Mm -hmm. Now we have to, and now all the blood has to line up. So he's in and out of the hospital now. When he has this LVAD, it wasn't that easy. They intubate you to do this surgery. Well, when he came out of surgery about a day or two later, they extubated him. That means they take it out. And all of a sudden, all the bells and whistles go off on him. He's dying right there. He's dying. This is right after surgery. He's dying. They roll him out, and I'm just a mess. I'm just a flipping mess. And what they had to do is they had to put him into a coma so they could regulate everything. So he had the surgery about December, let's say it was around the 20, or November after Thanksgiving, November 28th. He didn't come out of this coma till Valentine's Day. What? Yeah. So two and a half full months. Oh, yeah. Literally, uh, medications, IVs, 10 to 12 of them lined up. It's just, it's hard. And they meticulous, meticulously, go through each one. It's a science to see, that's for sure. I go in there every day and I'm screaming and yelling. I'm like, wake up, will you please just wake up, get better. I'm I'm like a crazy person. And finally, one day they said, you go home, don't come back here till you get some medication. (laughs) Because I was going right off the wall. So that's February. So once again, 
He's still back in and out of the hospital. July comes and we're driving down the street and this defibrillator, he's driving and the defibrillator's going off. Oh no. And I, we pulled over and then he opened the door and he eliminated. I mean, he was sick and we literally, and we had just come from the doctor. And so we turned around and went back there and we're waiting for them to come out again. And now, yeah, things going off, defibrillator. It's just, he's getting shocked left and right. So they put him in the hospital. This is like July, middle of July. Now we're on. So he's in there. We're still waiting for a heart. So it's like, you're either going to live or die. Really, it could have been anything. So July comes, August comes down. Remember, I'm going in there. My kids are going in there. All our friends are going in there. Everybody's trying to keep him up and above board because he's literally, he can't even walk around the floor of the hospital. He was 57 at this point. Yeah. So he's certainly not an old man by any stretch. This is Wade. This is not what you expect to be doing when you're 56. My husband was a very serious, older mind. He would never let me know if he was having any problems. He gets him to let him out. I don't even know how, but now he comes <laughs> home. He's got this LVAD. Now remember, you're wearing a purse full of these batteries. He's coming home with IVs that are attached to you. 32 medications. It's just horrendous. So he comes home and he's, he can walk in and he's doing the best he can. Now his friend lives right down the street and he says, listen, I'm just going to go out with Kenny to get some pizza. He hasn't been out since when? July. Wow. Yeah. So I'm sitting, I had gone to the pharmacist. I come back, I'm sitting here doing his pills. And I don't know what possessed me to say, yes, you can go. Because here's this very sick man. But you have to remember, I want him to be the old Adam. Right. He right? hasn't been himself for years at this point. It's about 6.30, 7 o'clock. 8.30 comes, 9 o'clock comes, 9.20 comes. And now his friend, his wife has MS and he can't leave her. So I'm thinking 920. And I just knew he was with some woman. And I just sat there and paced from my family room to the front window, family room to the front window, trying to call. He gets home at 1120. So this is a guy who's been basically in the hospital for the better part of a year who's got 32 medications, IVs. He's carrying around a battery pack of whatever to keep his heart alive or to keep blood pumping. And he's found another woman. Oh, <laughs> believe me, I, you know, I really can't even believe it. He walks in and he walks over to his chair and he goes, sit down. I says, okay. I says, where have you been? And he said, I took a nice nurse out to dinner. I go, excuse me? What? <laughs> excuse me? <laughs> a nice nurse. Well, then we both sat there and like cried, but he didn't go into it. He just, 
He didn't say, oh, this is a relationship. This is, but this is his first day home. This is, this, this is so out of character for this man. You don't understand. It's just not him. Now, remember, I told you the blood isn't going to the brain. So then he goes to sleep. And by four o'clock in the morning, I get up. Now we're in the same bed. By four o'clock in the morning, he gets, I get up and I get his phone. And he never had a code on it or anything like that. I open it up and here's this young girl, about 30 years old, in this short black mini dress, throwing him a kiss. What? I know. I know. It's so hard to believe. Divorce doesn't have to be complicated. Our Divorce.com's three-step procedure provides a simple and affordable process that you can follow at your own pace. Save thousands by visiting OurDivorce.com today. Okay, so again, I'm, I just want to make sure. We've got this 57, 58-year-old heart patient who's... Uh, on his deathbed at any given moment and a nurse from, I assume a nurse that he met in the hospital who's young, pretty, everything blowing him a kiss. I don't know which is more pathetic. Think about what the motive is here. I open it up. I find her. And now I just boom, boom, get on Google. And I'm Googling her and she lives right over here, 10 minutes away from us. And it keeps coming up that she lives at this address to, at the time, my husband was 56, 57, to like a 66-year-old man. And I'm like, oh, shoot, am I going to go over there and have to tell her father? Yeah. (laughs) That something's going on here. So next day he gets up and his mother lives three minutes down the street. He goes down to his mother's and he's there all day. He comes in and his brother called him and I could hear his brother saying, what have you done? Friday morning, I'm going to the hospital to HR. Uh I have her ass fired. I'm just marching down that hallway. I walked in and the secretary was there. I says, I'm here to get a nurse fired. And I showed her the picture and she goes, Oh my God, she's abusing him. Just like that. She's abusing your husband. That's what this girl comes out and says. Like it just falls out of her mouth. Oh, she's abusing him. Because what would you think if this is a patient that's this age and here's this 30-year-old nurse and I'm the same way. I'm thinking, what could be happening? Before you know it, even the president of the hospital is in this room. With, they're all coming left and right. This is not a good thing. Yeah. I've got remember, a- he's on the transplant list. So it's all very sketchy now. This could all blow up. In fact, one of them said to me, now because I'm in charge of his health, should we go ahead with this transplant? Oh, really? Put it in my hands. Yeah. The spouse has medical power of attorney, basically. Right. And here I am. I'm crying. I'm, of course, I want my husband to live once again. What could really be happening? So they 
put her on probation that day. That was Friday. I get back around. It's about noon, one o'clock. Remember I started out, it was like eight o'clock in the morning. And my husband's gone. Took his car, took his dog, the whole nine yard. He's gone. So I presumed he went to his mother and sisters that lived down the block. And I go over there and sure enough, his car's there. And I knock on the door and he comes to the door and I looked at him. I go, do you love her? And he just went like this. Literally, he couldn't look at me in the face and he walked away and let me in. Well, then I'm like ballistic and his mother's there and she's 82 years old and I'm ballistic and he's just sitting there like a puppy dog, basically. And she's like, you better leave the house. You better not upset him and upset him. So I go home and of course now my kids are involved because they're adults now. One's 21, one's 23, one's 25, 26, almost as old as this one. Yeah. Could have been one of my daughter's friends, for God's sakes. So they're all on the phone with him. The next day, he calls me. We talk for about 45 minutes. We really don't get anything settled. Now he's trying to tell me like it's a relationship. It was also a sexual relationship. This is a man who, when you had sex with him, he could hardly breathe. This is a nurse. She was screwing him in the hospital room. But I didn't know that yet because I'm thinking, what can happen in the hospital? Would you jeopardize your job like that? I just cannot imagine that somebody would jump. If anybody walked in, she would have been fired immediately. Here's the thing about that. My ex... She was having an affair with a coworker. They did it right there in the office. They just closed the door and they put paper up on the windows in the uh, in the in the uh, in the doorway. Why everybody was working outside yeah. of that office? And it's. I think it's just a. Um, I I don't know. Is it you know the 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 uh, what do you call it? The adrenaline rush or the dopamine rush is so great that you feel invincible and nothing's going to happen to me. So they were, yeah, they're doing it right there, right in the office. That's exactly it. It's now they're the lust. It's like yeah. this lust thing going on. Yeah. This is the thing. October 7th, they started. October 12th, they had sex. Five days. Yeah. What does that tell you? And they had just put him, put him on the last ditch medication. They figured if he didn't get a heart, probably within the next month or two, and then he was gone again. Here we go. We're, you know, he's at my mother-in-law's house. So I'm thinking, geez, well, at least he's in a safe place. And, you know, and um, he is totally out of character. He had come in then Sunday. So that's Friday. All that, he left he comes in, and I talked to him on Saturday, and he comes in here Sunday, and uh, he tells me he walks in. Now, we've been married 32 years. We have quite a bit of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. He said, you can have it all. I said, excuse me? Excuse me? 
He had taken his Corvette. And so now he wanted a car that he could just get around in. Once again, you're this sick. He shouldn't even been out driving. He's sitting in the car and we're back and forth. And now we're both, we're just crying. We're just crying. I'm like, really? What's going on here? How could this be? You know, you're just going to give up on us overnight. I mean, it literally felt like overnight. Yeah. I didn't know about the sex in the hospital for a while. Sunday, he comes over here for a car. But Monday, he wants me to go for a haircut and everything with him. Like normal. Like nothing's wrong. And he comes in here and we make love. So you guys are hooking up five days after you find out that he's been dorking the nurse? Oh, you don't know that they're... No, I don't know that yet. Oh. Because I'm, once again, I'm thinking what? You're in the hospital. You're at your mother's. What would you think? Yeah. Well, and you're sick and you're weak and you can't breathe and everything else. Exactly. Exactly. Monday, she has to go back into the hospital because that's the day they're really going to fire her. I went in there on Friday. They put her on probation. Monday, when he's making love to me, she's getting fired. Yeah. He goes back to his mother's house. <laughs> and then she picks him up and takes him to the bar. The girl, the nurse. Yes. Which I didn't know that Saturday night, Friday night, all this had gone, Friday had gone on. Saturday night, she took him to the bar too. She'd come and pick him up, take him to the bar. It was so weird. So I she know. goes on probation Friday. Saturday, she picks him up at his mother's house. They go out to the bar, and again, he's carrying around the battery-powered heart thing, LVAD or whatever you called it. Yes. So my husband, of course, like I told you, he's into cars. So is one of his good friends, their body fender guys. So he comes over to look at it. And I said, oh, you want to stay for dinner? Oh, sure. So I'm thinking every day I'm talking to him. I'm seeing him one way or another. So we make love again. Nice. It's a good week. Right. So here, I really don't want to because I know I could kill him. <laughs> but I had to, I just had to try to keep it together, him and I. So I have to ask, when he's over there on Wednesday and you guys are making love, is this is a desperation thing on your part? Or were you excited? And Was it it's, love or it, was it reality? It was everything. Okay. It was everything. It was everything. All right. So it's about nine o'clock at night. And he says, I don't feel very good. And he says, oh, okay. So he had driven over here from his mother's three blocks down. So I says, then I'll take you back because he insisted he had to go back. Now, the next day is Thanksgiving. And his mother invited me over and the kids, which we would normally go. That was her holiday was Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. So I was supposed to be over there at two o'clock. And maybe about 1.30, they called me and said, He's sick. He needs to go to the hospital. So I go over there, and he is. He's running 104 temperature. So I get him to the hospital, and they rush him in there. He's in ICU. Well, they come in, and he has septic. Is a nasty thing to get. Friday, I he's like delirious. That he's just getting the antibiotics. He's actually very ill. And I'm literally there now, day and night. 
Right. I'm spending the night with him in the hospital. See, they don't want you to really do that, but they figured oh, maybe he's going to die. Finally, I had to go home. And before I left, I just checked his pockets and he had about $1,600 in his pockets. So I thought, well, when he came home here, I know he grabbed $2,200. Okay. I knew he grabbed $2,200. So he had about 1600 So I thought, I'm going to take this money home because, geez, somebody's going to come in here and steal it. So it's Thanksgiving night and she's trying to call his phone. Remember, we're up at the hospital. He has 104 temperature. So I pick it up. Well, I had a nice a half an hour phone call with her. Oh, really? First thing she wanted to come out and say was, oh, he's been screwing around on you since the day you were married. Then she goes into, oh, he bought me this and he bought me that. And now she's talking to me, this girl who's known him a month, like he's all hers. She was a real bitch. Here <laughs> she's a nurse, my husband's nurse. And I go, what's wrong with you? Can't you get anybody your own age? <laughs> I said, if I was your mother, well, that really fried her. <laughs> it was great. But I'm coming up with all these zingers. That's Thanksgiving night. You're basic. She's telling you that he loves her and doesn't love you anymore and all that. And did you say, well, what about your husband? Oh, he approves. Now, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So this is four days in the hospital. He's finally starting to, the antibiotics are working. And then his mother and sister come in. Because I had taken his phone home the night before because now I was going to look in this freaking phone yeah. and I was going to find out everything or whatever. So his mother and sister came in. And they said, oh, where's your phone? Do you have your phone? Where's your phone? And I just kind of looked at him. It just seemed very odd to me. So I go home Sunday night, Monday, I come up and he totally won't talk. My daughter's there. He totally won't talk to me. So I figured, frick this, I'm done. I'm not playing this game anymore. I ran into his friend and his friend said to me, oh, I wonder if he was, if he's had safe sex because next thing she'll be saying she's pregnant. I called him up. It's 1030 at night now. I'm Monday. After he won't talk to me all day, I call him up. I said, did you use a condom? F no. That's what he says to me. Really? F no. I was like, whoa. So, of course, then the next day I'm not going. Finally, Wednesday, late afternoon, they're going to let him come home after he's been in there seven days now. And the social worker calls me. Now she goes, he's not coming to your house. He's not coming home. He's going back to his mother's house. Now he wants that $1,600 back. Okay. Well, I had gone to see a psychiatrist <laughs> because I needed to. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I walked in and it's, November 26th or so. And we always had a real Christmas tree every year, our whole lives. And I walked in the back door and I look and my three kids are here with a real Christmas tree, putting the Christmas tree up for me. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. Oh, my kids are wonderful kids. They're wonderful. I, can, uh, I don't have a complaint about them. That was hard to take. 
So he wanted that $1,600. And also, this IV stuff was coming from Walgreens, going to be delivered here that evening. And he needed that medication. And he didn't want to come over here and get it. So my son was going to be in charge of taking this money over and this medication. So... My son, so we're now we're making chocolate chip cookies and they're putting the tree up. And these are young adults, but they're trying to make yeah. the best out of it because they know what this means to me. Yeah, they're old enough to understand how bad you're hurting. And so kudos to them. Now, think about it. They're hurting just as bad. When you cheat on somebody, you're not just cheating on that spouse. You're cheating on the whole family. So... The next day or two days after that, whatever, we have to go back to the doctor's office. So I'm taking him to the doctor's office like normal. So they separate us, immediately put me in one room. He goes into another room and the psychiatrist comes in, who was a psychiatrist all during, remember the team of doctors? And he looks at me and he says, it's all about the money. That's what she wants. She's antisocial. I go, now, I didn't know a thing. I'm serious. I never knew. I thought antisocial meant, well, I'm not personable. Didn't mm-hmm. realize it was a cluster B. Okay? Mm-hmm. So now the hospital really feels like, oh, man, this is a lawsuit coming big time. But the psychiatrist is trying to tell me, yes, she is abusing him. This is abuse. This is like elder abuse. Yeah. Except for you have now he's about 58 years old or going to be whatever, 57, whatever. And you cannot claim elder abuse to you're over 60. I'm just sobbing. I'm just sobbing. And they're like, we're so sorry, Mrs. Cantone. We, we let you down and all this. And I'm just sobbing. What can we do for you? I go, just get us help. Get us help. Something's got to happen here. Get us help. So... Now they're going through all this and he's pretty much telling me that she's a sociopath. And I don't even know what one is. In my day, we didn't know what these things were. So I just kind of let it go over because I'm thinking, oh, he's in love with this girl. That's all I can keep thinking. I hear him go in now to my husband's room right next door and you could hear right through the walls. So my husband must have been hearing. So he says to to the psychiatrist, he says, I, when I saw her, I felt the same way that I felt about my wife when I saw her the first time and he's doing all this, right? Yeah, right. So I'm now, now I'm really in tears. That day at two o'clock, they said, you're going to go ahead. You're going right to this other, the big psychiatrist and you're going to go there and He's telling the psychiatrist, I'm in on this. I really want to be with this girl. I'm 100% in right in front of me. I'm like, who are you? Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, he says, and my wife is controlling. Oh, there we go. (laughs) So they decide that they're going to do separate. Him with a psychiatrist, me with a psychiatrist. And the next day, like we're going now every day. And I'm picking him up from his mother's going there. And all of a sudden he's signing this paper. 
And now you remember, I have power of attorney. He's signing away all his psychiatric, like I cannot see it. Now who put him up to that? Right. Yeah. I was just devastated because she wanted him to go live with her and her husband. And her husband. Yeah. What the hell? So I looked at him. I said, okay, if you want to do this, I just think that I should know a few things about this. I've been married to you for 32 years. I'm just not going to let you go and live with anybody. Somehow I was able to pull over and have a conversation with him. Now he's like in a fog. But I said, oh, so now you're going to walk the daughter, the little six-year-old, to the bus stop. And, you know, is the husband going to be there? And I'm asking. And now he's like looking in space. Now it's starting to really hit him. What's this going to really look like when I'm in her townhouse with her husband and her kids? Now, I have to say the one kid is a 10-year-old that she had from the first relationship is in the Audi home. Is in what? An Audi home. You know what an Audi home is? For bad kids, detention, like bad. Oh, okay. Yeah, we called them Audi homes back in our day. But he would come home on the weekends. I go, oh. I said, you've now, all our kids are out of the house. Mm -hmm. He had plans to do Florida vacations. And now you're going to take on a new little family here? Okay, so I'm like literally trying to have a decent conversation with him about it. And now he's starting to think. I could see his mind is going. So we had a stop at the at the at CVS, which is our, our uh, CVS is the pharmacy. Mm-hmm. And he goes in for his medication and he comes out and he gets in the car and the phone rings and he picks it up. And she said, well, if I would have fucking known this a month ago. I would I I would have never agreed to any of this. I've known what? She said if I had known this a month ago, known what? Because he in that pharmacy, he told her he wanted to break it off. Oh, so you had basically talked some sense into him. Right. But I know not only did but so did that psychiatrist that day. Because remember how he said I was controlling? Yeah. Well, Eventually, I did get those records, and it was the psychiatrist said she's the one who's controlling. Well, of course. So I take him back to his mother's, and he calls me within the hour. Yeah, I'm done with her. That's it. Okay, fine and dandy. This is good. We're getting on. We're doing good. We're doing good. Oh God, this is, it really is very emotional for me. Did I tell you this was going to be very triggering for me? It means you cared and you were not a, you are not a sociopath. You're right. Oh, no, I, I love my husband deeply and he's sick, right? Oh God, sorry about that. So he says he's going to break up with her. And this is like November 29th we're on now. Remember, this all started on full November 12th. He had mm-hmm. been with her since October 7th. And this is of, what year was that? 2012. 2012, this is going on, okay? okay? We're at November 28th, 29th, there. So 
He's broken up with her. A day goes by, two days go by, whatever. And he's still at his mother's. Well, he calls her back up and she says, I'm coming over. Well, I found out later she went over and screwed him. In mom's house. And then started to blackmail him because she recorded their sex. She was blackmailing him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now he's giving her money left and right. Now he's into this hole. He's so far dark into the hole. I just can't tell you enough. But I didn't know that at the time. He wasn't going to tell me that at that time. So wait a minute. What is she blackmailing him? She was going to take the videos, pictures, and show them to me and my kids. So imagine you're a man like of your age. And if some girl saying to you, I'm going to show this to your wife and your adult kids, what would you do? Well, if they already knew that I was screwing her. He couldn't imagine that whatever sex they were having, God only knows. God only knows. She's 30. I will tell you, I did finally get on the internet two years later and she was doing porn. So I just can't tell you enough. So he's like caught in a trap. That was December 1st. What she was really blackmailing him on. She said she was pregnant. So now she needs more money. Mm -hmm. Now we have all our accounts together. So I didn't know he was giving her any money. If he started taking money, even from his work account, his Christmas account, I would know it. My name's on everything. And then Mm -hmm. it would put him back into the trick bag. So he comes home. And that week, between the 15th and the 22nd, he's a mess. He says, I'm going to be dead by Saturday. And he's sitting there like this, like one of those, like, oh, like this type of, and I'm like, oh, and I says, well, and I'm thinking, oh, geez, he's not too happy to be home feeling like this. So the 22nd is before Christmas. I'm going to have Christmas Eve, and then I would have Christmas Day, too. So I, we always go to the same place to get the beef and do whatever. And I says, oh, when I get through working, then I'll go. And he goes, oh, I'll go with you. And then before you know it, he says, I'll just go for it. Once again, he really shouldn't be driving, but he's going to go. Okay. So he leaves at about 11 o'clock. Now, he had to go there to the auto store. He went and got the car washed. About three things. It's now 3.30 in the afternoon. He's not home. Left at 11. So now I get on Verizon, and it's kind of like it doesn't show up right away. But by the time, now I'm calling him going, where are you? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm on my way home now. So he pulls up, and I can see he's on the phone. He's on his phone with his friend, and he walks in, and he doesn't get off the phone. He goes right upstairs, goes, sits in bed. So now Verizon shows up that he's texting her. Right. I'm like, so I went up there. I was just, I was crazy. So I don't know how we made it through Christmas. I don't know how we made it through Christmas. I really don't. I don't know. Well, we didn't. And I'll tell you why. So that's the 22nd. The 23rd is Sunday morning. Mm Mm-hmm. And my kids had come home because they want to be here because they don't know if he's going to die or not. So I looked up and I says, anybody want to go to church? 
And my husband says, yeah, I do. So my kids didn't go. Him and I went. And we went to my dad's parish right over here in the next town. And we got in there, and my dad's dead. And I just felt like my dad was sitting right next to me. In the meantime, I'm crying there. He's crying. And we get out to the vehicle at the end, and he's just blubbering. and He's all over himself. Well, come to find out, because that day before, he had given her more money. But I didn't know that at the time. Where's his money coming from? His sister. What? Yep. What, she's just giving it to him or loaning it to him or what? Yes, I could show you copies of that too because this is 12, right? This is 12. 15, he still hadn't paid her back in the year 2015. He still hadn't paid her back. I didn't know about it even till then, 2015. So from 12 to 15, I had no idea that he had given her all this money. We're going to the psychiatrist and he's even lying to the psychiatrist, not telling the psychiatrist. It was just, it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. How does that conversation go? It's like, I don't know his sister's name. We're going to call her, let's say Eve. Hey Eve, I'm trying to cheat on my wife with this 30 year old chick. Do you mind loaning me some money? How did that go? I'm, I need to borrow money so I can screw this other woman. She went there and said, I'm dying. And this is what I want to do. My last, this is what I need to do. I really need to be with this girl. She makes me happy. Oh, fuck that. Okay, first off, okay, first, let me just say this to Adam's sister, who may or may not hear this. Did you, If he's dying, did you really expect to be paid back? And if the answer to that is no, then it's not a loan. It was a gift. So he never paid you back? Well, duh, he was dying. This was your parting gift to enable his adultery. Yes. Congratulations, sister. Blood is thicker than water. That's all I can tell you. Blood is thicker than water. Yeah, there's There's no no question. No question at all. But I can honestly say, if my son was bringing home some girl on his wife, I couldn't do it. But then again, too, if my son was dying. Yeah, but you know what? I'm sorry. I have this, I have a policy of, first off, I don't protect cheaters. And and here my mother-in-law had been cheated on. Yeah. And maybe and that, father- maybe she was just like, oh, well, this is what men do. Yes. Once again, what happens in your beginning of your life, that trauma comes back to haunt you. <laughs> Came back to haunt everybody. So my husband, who used to say, I'm never going to be like my father. What happened? Turned out being like his father. My trauma was my parents being so crazy. They were like screaming and yelling. They drank. I didn't. I totally, I wouldn't even have a drink during this time. I wanted to be clear headed about this. It was hard enough, complicated enough to keep up with, let alone do something like that. But I was hell on wheels then. I was just a, now I was a bitch. Now I was a freaking bitch. So he comes upstairs and we're watching a Christmas movie and the phone rings. And that's when you had landlines. You had landlines right there. And I answer it and they said, this is the transplant team. We have a heart. Really? 
two days before yeah. Christmas. You, you don't go in right away. They start doing all the, the testing the blood, making sure everything's going to match. Da-da. So we're on the, on our way to the hospital. Now it's Sunday night at 920 at night. Mm-hmm. We're on our way. They get them in there. My kids, everybody comes up. I got pictures of that too. They take them in at 530 in the morning, Christmas Eve. Wow. It could be a Christmas miracle. Once again, another 12-hour surgery. We're all there through Christmas Eve. In the meantime, I'm so, like, sick physically. So I go to the bathroom, and I'm it's blood. But I didn't want to say anything to anybody because, what, am I going to come out with that? In the meantime, when he was in surgery, you're trying to figure out who the donor is. It's just an instinct. You want to know who's the donor. What's this guy like? Because they came in and said, he's a big man just like you. He's a big guy. So wait, at this time, my sister-in-law goes on the internet and finds out that there's a gangbanger from the south side of Chicago that got shot in the head, and he's right across the hall from my husband. Well, not... Only does he have all the bullshit that he's going through. Now he's going to get a gangbanger's heart. (laughs) Well. Of course. Yeah. So he comes out. It's Christmas Day. And he can open his eyes. Extubated him. And he's smiling. And he can't really talk. But he's just kind of. And now the next day, the 26th, they're sitting him up in a chair. Yeah. Unbelievable. They're sitting him up in a chair. So 26, 27, 28 goes by. And now, and he's in ICU. And everybody in this hospital knows about this fraud, right? Oh. So they're all watching. Anybody who comes in there, you could see that they're just all, they have to be. This could be trouble for them. And I am too. I'm just, once again, I'm bleeding. It's New Year's Eve and I'm up there during the day and my daughters went to a bar that night and they says, mom, would you mind picking us up afterwards? Because they didn't want to drive. I said, sure. No problem. Yeah. So I leave him probably about, oh, 1030 at night or whatever. I come home and we're talking and now he's talking like, like he's been talking to her. Oh, he's. Now he's saying, I haven't been happy for 10 years. Just crazy. And I'm like, oh, no. Now I know she's gotten to him. When we're on the phone, he was starting to get so, like, hyperventilating that the nurse came and said, are you all right? Because his blood pressure was just going off, off, yeah, off. It was now January 14th. We come home, and everything is fine, and now... We're not seeing a psychiatrist at this time. We're It's all died down because he's coming home from the heart transplant. You have to be quiet. You have to work your way into it. A lot of meds. Now he's on 62 pills a day. No way. They're rattling. The but the defibrillator pacemaker's gone. The LVAD's gone. That was the first thing he did. He reached down and he patted his side to see if he had that LVAD still. We're not seeing anybody. And now it's hitting me. Everything's hitting me. Now I'm having a mental breakdown. Now 
I'm having a mental breakdown. I'm literally screaming and yelling and I'm just crazy. I'm just crazy. So my daughter was here and she automatically Googled a psychiatrist in this neighborhood. Forget the other ones because they're through the hospital. I almost said the hospital's name. They're through the hospital. So we want to try to avoid them now. You get what I mean? Mm -hmm. To give them any kind of more information. So this is about March 23rd or so. And now he starts to confess to me the night that he took her out, the nice girl out for nurse for she screwed him in the car. Wow. And that's why he came home when he drove her home because he had gone and picked her up. They went out for dinner. She screwed him in the parking lot. And she goes, you go home and grow some balls. That's what she told him. Like grow some balls and leave your wife? Yes. Meanwhile, she's married. And now, two days later, he's moving to his mother's, and now she wants him to move in with her. And her <laughs> husband. Holy moly. Okay. So now I'm even getting mentally more sick, to be honest with you. And at the end of May, it was around my birthday, he comes in and I, oh, he slipped. Because he said that's the only time he ever screwed her. It was that one night. It was that one night. That's what he's telling me up till May of 13, the end of May of 13. But this, but their, whether it's emotional or physical affair has been now been going on now since October 7th. Okay. So we're seven months into it. And he says that they had sex the first time, first time they went out and never again since. Right. So we're out in the car or out in the garage and he goes, well, the first time, And I looked at him, I go, the first time? You know what that meant, that there really was another time. And all this time he's claiming that was the only time. That really wasn't the only time. So now I'm like, you have to tell me. Okay, so it's been twice. So Twice? Like they had sex twice? Now that's what he's trying to tell you? Yes, now twice. That's bullshit. Okay. (laughs) But I'm believing this because I trusted him. When I found out... I questioned everything. Literally, I wondered if she ever loved me. I wondered if the first time I caught her in 2017, I wondered if this was the first time. I wondered if she was using me. I don't know what for because she made her own money and everything, but I questioned everything. So for you to sit there and be able to say, oh, I believed him when he said only once. And then I believed him when he finally came clean and said twice, I'm just going, Laura, how? Don't get me wrong. We're in counseling and I'm doing this too. Do you, did you ever love me? Have you ever done this before? Yeah, we're doing that whole, whole thing. Finally, we're going to the counselor and she says, I got a hold of the records from the psychiatrist from the hospital, from those big psychiatrists. She goes, she is a sociopath. And him and I looked at each other and this is the first time he's ever hearing it even. And he's, we both looked at one another and she literally had to have us Google it. And we still didn't understand what a sociopath was. He had no idea that he was really being taken advantage of, taken for money. Manipulated, controlled. Yeah. Well, then I find out that now she, during this time, 
Now he works for a great company. I got a great retirement, great 401k, a lot of money in this 401k after 26 years he worked there. Mm-hmm. And she's trying to get him to write everything over to her. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So now put her and her husband together. Think about that. Yeah. Now is it making sense to you? So hubby's in on it and they're going, they're just going for his retirement. Oh, absolutely. And hey, why not kill him at the same time? Yeah. Have him come over here. I'll just flub his medicine up and he'll never know the difference. Seriously. Yeah. Sure. Well, I- and hey, honey, there's this patient at work. He's got a great 401k. All I got to do is fuck him to death. So that, yeah, okay. Yes. I'm in. That makes sense now. Okay. Got it. Now, remember, that's the end of May. So July 13th comes along and we go to a car show and we're at the steak and shake, but we, and I look and there's him and her sitting in the booth with the daughter. Her and her husband. Yes. And he looks up at me and just stares at me. And then all of a sudden she turns her head and she looks up. And you remember my husband's a six foot four and a half and she's just, so he goes, let's go. I go, no, we're not. We're going to order the food. I'm going to sit here where you're going out the door. And I just sat there and watched them, the two of them. And they're, and then the little daughter turns her head and starts looking at us. The little six-year-old. And you could tell whatever they were planning, I don't know. So all of a sudden we're sitting there and I don't know what my husband must have felt like, but, but I was pissed. You can imagine. And she gets up and she walks out and she's got her daughter and she stands right in front of us basically. And just kind of smiles and does this. And then she walks out the door while the husband's paying the bill. So as he's walking out, he comes up to us and he said, now he's met my husband. She's brought him over there to introduce him. Sure, they're going to live together, right? Yeah. And he's feeling him out. So he looks at me in front of my husband and says, I'm glad you won. That's what he said to me. Oh, I'm my glad gosh. You, I'm glad you won. That's what he said to me. I'm glad you won. And you know what? I didn't even, I know you're going to think I'm naive, but I didn't think it was a game didn't think I was in the middle. You're at the baseball game and all of a sudden you're coming in the fifth or sixth inning. I really thought this was like love. It's hard to wrap your head around this because he was in love with her. He was in love with her. He told me he loved her. He, she told him, she told him within a week and a half, she loved him. Yeah. She was love bombing and she was controlling and she had manipulated him. I don't know if who's to say if he loved her or not. I just have a hard time believing that he loved her. I'm sure he had feelings and I'm sure she made his heart skip a beat, no pun intended, since his heart was barely beating. And I'm sure that, wow, my heart's hardly pumping, but I can get it up around her. She must be something special. I get all that, but that's not love. Divorce doesn't have to be complicated. Our Divorce.com's three-step procedure provides a simple and affordable process that you can follow at your own pace. Save thousands by visiting OurDivorce.com today. This is July like 13th. So remember at the end of the May, he tells me. So we get our food and then he walks out. We get our food and this place is packed. And I can see my husband scanning the parking lot. 
for cars. And next thing I know, I see the husband with the daughter fly by our tent. And then the next thing I know, here she comes right up in my face. And I'm like, you and every word you could think of Uh from C to B to you (laughs) name it. And she goes, this is exactly what she said. Now I got to tell you something between there too, because just prior to this, I had filed a complaint to the board for her job to professional board. Oh, so not just the hospital, but to like the professional licensing board. Yes. Yes. So that was in, in the process when she's like facing me now. So she knows it. She's not going to say it. I'm not going to say it, but it's in the process. She knows about it already. So she looks at me and she says, you want to hit me? Go ahead. Hit me. Go ahead. Hit me. Go ahead. So she's trying to egg me on. Then she says, well, did he tell you about the baby? Just like that. Did he tell you about the baby? Well, thank God he had told me the month and a half prior, Mm -hmm. or I would have been standing there with egg on my face. Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, all you wanted was money. She walks over to him, like has this quaint conversation and says, I'm so glad you got a new heart. And what does he say? Thank you. And she walks away. But the best part is she. what she was trying to do is that husband was waiting over there. He was going to have his camera ready. So the counselor's like, you need to do a lawsuit against this hospital. You have to. You got to mm-hmm. do this. So now we go to this one lawyer. And now you're talking about a big hospital. You're not just one lawyer. I don't care if you're a Chicago lawyer or not. But one lawyer against... This huge hospital. Yeah. So you really need to find somebody. So in the meantime, my husband had the priest coming in every day, giving him communion at church. So he starts to talk to him. And so the priest sits down with us and says, I got a lawyer for you. Okay. So we go and this guy decides he's going to take it. So we start the process. And we not only sue the hospital, but we sue her personally, too. Two days later, it's on the news, 7 o'clock news in the morning, with our names. That Laura and Adam are suing the hospital and this woman. For battery. And, of course, she had to be just beside herself because my husband's betraying her. Like a year goes by. Now, after all this bullshit had finally come out, I had gone up to a couple nurses and I was like, did you know? Yeah, yeah, we knew. So your husband had this transplant in December of 12, is that right? Yes, Christmas Eve, December 12. And we're now at this point we're in... 13, 14 at least, right? We're in 14. We filed, it was like September 17th of 2014. Okay. So we're at the end of 14. So he's basically had his new heart for two years. How's his health? Good. Back to his old self or just good? Mentally, he wasn't himself, but, but I can't divorce him because now we have a lawsuit. It's together me and him. You have to act like you're the loving couple. In the meantime, I'm getting more pissed by the day. So once again, 
He's only had sex twice, right? So now it's November 12th, two years, November 13th, whatever, 12 or 13, two years exactly from the day that he came home and went out with her. And a couple of days before that, he sat down. And he says, I got to tell you something. I says, what? He says, yeah, I screwed her three more times at my mother's house. And I just sat there. I went, you got to be kidding. So the next day we go right into counseling. And I said to my counselor, she says, oh, so what's going on? Is there any progression with anything of the lawsuit? <laughs> and I says, no, but Adam has something to say. That's 250% so, more infidelity. So he proceeds to tell her, I slept with her three times at my mother's house. Right away, she just, you could see she was, she had no clue. Huh. In a year, he had never said a word. Who is he protecting himself? My in-laws, he's protecting her. He's protecting every, he's protecting himself the biggest. He probably thought he was protecting you. And me too. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that too. So I looked at her and I said, Joyce, did you know about any of this? And she said, no, not a thing. Now, when we get to the money part, he had never told her that either. He didn't reveal that till 15. Yeah. And they revealed that he'd been given her money and it came from his sister. Mm -hmm. Now we're up to November and we go away to Florida in January and the priest he had to come down and see his sister or whatever. So he stayed with us for a couple of days. And I don't know if he's just really confessed. And remember, he's the one who got us this attorney. Mm -hmm. And so the attorneys didn't know this either. Ah, they're in the middle of this before they could say it was abuse. Because he was in the hospital right. and in the car. But now he's inviting her to his mother's house. Yeah. How do we say that this isn't really consensual. Right. Oh, and she's now she's got the tapes, right? So those tapes, yes. whether they worked for blackmail or not, they certainly were great a great defense. Now you could see she's losing her house, supposedly. What she's doing is she didn't want, didn't want to look like she had any money, is right. what it boiled down to. So in foreclosure, all this stuff like this. And so 15 rolls around. And in the meantime, I test positive for an STD. Okay. So Laura, who has been a faithful wife, has an STD. Oh, oh yeah, you know. Wow. Yeah. When I found out about my ex's first affair, we were sitting there. Like within the hour of finding out, I'm we're in our bedroom talking. I'm crying my eyes out and everything. And she says, well, Tom, you should be grateful. And I said, I should be grateful. Why would I be grateful? And she said, well, we've both been married. So her affair partner and her, we've both been married for so long. The chances are you're not going to get an STD. Oh, wow. Thank wonderful. you. Thank you for thinking of me when you decided to fuck somebody else. I was shocked and appalled. So now this meant 
he had to tell all these cardiologists and all these doctors this. Why haven't I divorced him yet at this point? You're thinking to yourself. Well, I'm going to tell you why. We decide that we're going to go to the town police where this happened at the hospital, and he's going to try to get her on rape charges. He's going to try to get her on rape charges. Yes, because I think he was convinced at this point now that he was a victim. So we go, we sit down with these detectives for hours. And I said to the detectives, boy, if this comes out bad, that's it. I'm really done. Okay. And I've got to tell you through this, all these years, now we're married, geez, two, three, three, four, 34, 35 years. And we never said the D word to each other. Never even insinuated, except for him leaving to go to his mother's. But besides that, never insinuated that I was out the door. I would never do that because you have to back yourself up if you're going to do that. Yeah, you have to be ready. I don't think I was ready. So, um, after that, he calls me one day at the end of January, and he says, it it doesn't look good. They're not going to do rape charges. Well, it's a whole police report. Oh. I could not read it. I, I just, it just, because I knew it, it wasn't going to be good, mm-hmm. you know? So now the attorneys are calling because now they've got this report. And they're saying, you know what? We might not have a case here. So for a week, he tried to get another attorney. And no one would take the case because now, number one, you're up against this huge hospital. I finally sit down and I read it. And the first lines say it was consensual. Mm -hmm. And I walked out of my office. He was sitting in his chair. And I looked at him, I says, I'm done now. I'm done. I'm done. That's a tough decision to make. Yeah. We pretty much sat down and decided that we're going to put the house up for sale about April. We had even gone through Easter time and Easter week, and we were going to churches, and he was trying to ask for, I guess, another miracle. And I'm just not feeling good. I've got this terrible stomach ache. And I'm like, well, okay. So one day he's in so much pain once again, because he hasn't left the house. We're deciding on all of this. And then once we go, when my father passed away, I got his townhouse. So I was going to move to the townhouse that I had rented out. So I was going to have to get the renters out. And I bring him to the hospital and they said, you need to go to a urologist. He looks at me, he says, you have to go to the hospital. You have to get a colonoscopy. Okay. And he has cancer. Oh, no. Now he has cancer. And not only did he have colon cancer, but lymphoma. Immediately, we sit down with a surgeon, and the surgeon says, yes, I can take this out. Then we went to this oncologist. So he comes in, he says, 
I think I can cure this for you with chemo. So we go into the chemo. That started probably, it was after my birthday again, June. He was dead by December 10th. Wow. So from, I have a stomach ache to death, six months, excuse me. Yeah. And I can see the pain on your face right there. Everything he put you through, the years of caregiving and everything else, and then the years of betrayal, you still love him. Oh, yeah. And he's been gone since 16. And I can't stop. I think about him every second. Oh, now I have to do the whole funeral thing. I made it through the wake and the funeral. I did good. And I also had a 92-year-old aunt. And she's fit as a fiddle. She really is. And then just all of a sudden, boom, she has a heart attack. So now my husband dies in December, and she dies the 4th of July. And the next thing you know, I'm getting a message saying, I think your husband, I think your husband was my biological father. Okay, and how old was this person? She would have been born in 1978. So look at, from 75 to 79, we were dating other people. Right. Okay. So there was no so exclusivity. Be, okay. So I couldn't be upset about that. Okay. But what I could sympathize with this girl about was because she didn't know who her real father was. She's also got this older guy with her that's saying that my father-in-law was his father. My husband's half brother. Okay. I remember I had everything of my husband's and I's, and now I just inherited everything of my aunt's. And I sat down with my kids, and I was like, oh, God, guys, just let's take this slowly. Let's find out. So my daughter decides to do the DNA test. Mm-hmm. So this girl had a picture of her real mother, and her when she was an infant. And this infant looked just like my oldest daughter. Uh-huh. Exactly. Just exactly. Oh, I believed that it was either my husband or my brother-in-law. And my son goes over to my brother-in-law and says, what do you know about this? And he said, oh, I never slept with that girl. I know who I would have slept with. Okay, so my son comes back and says, nah, it's probably got to be dad. So she takes the test, and it comes back, my brother-in-law's. Another liar in the group. Wow. Back, and we're sitting at the table here, me, my two daughters, and we're looking at this DNA, and I'm looking, and I go, oh, wait, something don't sound right here. So this name, I won't say the last name. Let's just say it's Ganders. And so all these people coming up are Ganders. And I'm like, what? Who? What? Wait. All of a sudden, I can see my mother's Christmas list that I still have from 1955, 
53, 54, whatever in those years. And I see the name and I run in the house and I open it up and here it is, my grandmother's neighbor, two doors down. So your biological father was your grandparents' neighbor. Now, Now we're on the hunt for this guy and he's still alive. Oh. So I find out who my real father is and this girl finds out that my brother-in-law. So we're like finally off the hook. Finally, I feel like I can breathe again. That's kind of the bookends that's, that I had. That's fantastic. Laura, first off, congratulations for like being upright. I think that what you've been through over the last basically decade, I just hats off. You're upright. Your kids, how was their relationship with Adam towards the end? They loved their father. My one daughter did say, don't think I didn't resent him. Don't think I wasn't ticked at him. Don't think I wasn't mad at him. And they have continued their relationship with my in-laws. Oh, have they? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which good for them, I guess. When you talk about your kids and that kind of relationship, when I was about 22, 23 years old, my best friend, his mom and I had a really great relationship. And one day my buddy, and I won't mention any names here, but my buddy said, I can't believe it. My dad just left my mom. And it really, it hit me. They'd been married for 30 plus years and all, and just, they were a power couple. They were great. And I didn't know what to make of it. And I remember one afternoon I'd asked, are you guys getting a divorce? And she said, no, I still love him. And I'm going, but he left you for this younger. I mean, he left to be with this other young woman. And I said, well, she goes, something tells me he's coming back. And I said, well, do you want him back? That's the part I couldn't understand. Fast forward 25 years and my wife is cheating on me and I'm forgiving her. So I get it. At the time, I didn't understand it. And she just said, she said, I just love him. And that this doesn't change that. And I remember my buddy and I driving away that, again, wherever we were headed. And I just said, man, I just had a great talk with your mom and she's not leaving your dad. And he goes, oh yeah, he'll be back. I just remember I was over at their house one, one afternoon and there he was. And I, and he goes, Hey Tom, how you doing? I said, Hey, you know, and I said, good to see you. And he goes, yeah, it's good to see you too. And that was it. And I never talked to my buddy about it again. She and I talked about it a few times after that. And she said, I'm just glad he's home. And I just, and obviously there was more to it. And I'm not, I was just a family friend. It's not like I was totally involved in it. But I just remember thinking, I don't know if I could do anything like that. But again, fast forward 25 years and I did. Well, here you're saying that you forgave. I never forgave. I still haven't forgiven my husband. I still haven't forgiven him. He's on his deathbed. And wherever he had gotten from a Catholic thing about repenting and what repent means, he was actually repenting 
It just didn't seem good enough. He really wanted me to forgive him on his deathbed. My son was actually sitting there talking to him. And my son says, I'm going to forgive you for everything, dad. And he looked at me. He says, mom, do you have anything to say? I said, nope. Hmm. No, I never forgave him. I never forgave him. I still haven't. Right. So I will say this. I generally don't give advice at the end of the show, but I'm going to this time. Somebody hit me up on TikTok couple of years ago because I talked about how I forgave my cheating wife and somebody wrote she's not worth forgiving and I said yeah you may be right but I'm worth it forgiveness isn't for him Laura forgiveness is for you and that doesn't mean you can force it and I'm not sitting here going get over it Laura I'm not by any stretch But I just, I'll tell you what, letting go of that hate and bitterness and anger or whatever it is that you're feeling, oh my gosh, it's huge. It's liberating. Here's an adjective I've never used in real life. You've been through a harrowing decade or more. You've got, you've been through a lot. You've learned a lot. So what is that? What's the parting thought? We're only as sick as our secrets. Oh, I like that. We're only as sick as our secrets. To me, when I look back and I see that my husband kept that all in and everybody says the same thing, that's probably maybe what brought on his cancer. I don't think he could live with himself anymore. I really don't. It was just, it wasn't him. It was such an opposite person mm-hmm. and that's what i think not as sick as your secrets so that's what people should learn i and i don't mean to pat myself on the back but i'm almost too truthful You're right but look at it's like a bookend look at my mother mm-hmm. and look at my husband mm-hmm. so when i'm in counseling and all that they're actually bookends my mother and my husband were the same. It's like now I repeated history. My husband repeated history with his father. Wow. Laura, hats off again. Congratulations for just being upright and and for getting help too. You've talked about therapy a few different times. So congratulations that you're working through that. I know that's not easy. And congratulations on three amazing kids, it sounds like too. Well, thank you, Laura, for being here. I really appreciate your sharing such a sad story. And thank you again for being part of the show. Well, thank you. That's just tragic. The entire thing. Remember what I said at the beginning that I wasn't sure how I felt about this story? Well, I think it's a story we all needed to hear. And probably for different reasons. At this point, I'm just glad to hear Laura's getting the help she needs. I hope she finds peace. I can't wait to hear Leanne's take on Laura's story. But before I turn it over to Leanne, just remember that while Leanne is a licensed professional, she's never met anyone in the story, so she's just offering commentary on the story. This is not counseling or therapy. Here's Leanne. Hi, everyone. As Tom said, my name is Leanne Kanzler, and I am a psychologist and divorce coach from Sydney, Australia. And what I will be talking about today is not so much Laura's story exactly. I've not met her, 
So I don't want this to be perceived as therapy or anything like that. But I'm going to be talking about her story in a very big picture way so that you can perhaps learn something about yourself, your own situation, and how you can heal from that. So as you heard, Laura's story is very complex. But there is one thing that really sets the scene, and that is the sense of abandonment. When a child is abandoned, what happens is they form a belief about themselves and the world around them. And abandonment can be anything from, you know, things really obvious like adoption or if a parent passes away through divorce, a child can feel abandoned by one or both of their parents. They can even get that sense through um, trauma like uh, alcoholism or emotional distancing from their parents. There are so many ways that a child can feel abandoned. Even getting lost in a shopping centre, if it's not resolved quickly within inside the child, they can feel this ongoing sense that they were abandoned. And that is why it's really important to talk about these things and make sure the child always knows that they are well loved. So what can happen then is when the child is abandoned, they feel this sense or they form this, these beliefs about themselves and the world around them. And this can be things like I'm unlovable, nobody wants me, I'm not good enough, and so much more. On a broader scale, it can bring up beliefs like I will never abandon anybody else. I won't let anyone else ever feel like I did, or I will do whatever it takes to ensure I never feel like that again. Those beliefs have consequences, as you can see. Laura stayed in her marriage even though she was not happy. She loved her husband, but still had trouble with forgiveness for everything that happened. When her husband was sick, she stuck by him, even though there was ample reason for her to leave. And then when he was perceived as being okay to look after himself, the marriage ended. Why do you think that was? So there is so much we could say on that, really. But let's stick to abandonment and how the inner child will do whatever it takes to stop the pain. The pain could be your own or others. Because by stopping the pain of other people, what happens is that you are unconsciously also stopping your own pain. If this is the first time you've heard something like this, it will seem a bit complicated and you may have to listen to it again. But basically, what our unconscious mind will do is whatever it takes to protect us and others. However, the unconscious mind does not always align with the conscious mind. Ah, it's so confusing, so complex. So as adults, what we can do is we, we stay in unhealthy relationships or jobs or families and we can see that it's unhealthy. But consciously, we know that something is not right and something has to give. So our unconscious mind just considers what it is that it has learned before the age of seven and what has been passed on to us by our DNA for generations and it will all make decisions based on that even though our conscious mind is freaking out and wants to get out of there. And so we have this little or big internal battle. I love you. I hate you. I need you. Get away from me. Don't leave me. Don't stay with me. And so on. I've had these internal battles for years. Fortunately, not anymore. And I only went away when I learned that my inner child was simply trying to protect me and that my inner child was in charge, in charge of me. Yeah, it was in charge of me and it really controlled a lot of decisions that I made. And I'm sure for most of you, 
because all of us have an inner child. When we are out of control, it means that our inner child is in charge. Uh, and knowing this can really have a big impact on what happens and the way that you process your emotions in your divorce and other aspects of life. The other thing that I just wanted to make a tiny comment on was that a death does not always make a divorce any easier. In fact, it can leave you with a sense of an open door. It didn't end like it was supposed to. There were things they'd done said, and this can leave someone feeling stuck. Laura, I wish you well with your healing journey, and thank you for the courage you showed in telling your story. It really can make a big difference. I love how she clears away the bullshit and tells it like it is. I really hope you enjoyed this week's show. If you did, be sure to let us know by giving us a five-star rating on your podcast app. Thanks for being here. Have an amazing week. Bye. Did you know you can get divorced without hiring an attorney? Let OurDivorce.com guide you through our three-step process for a simple flat fee. Visit OurDivorce.com to learn more and get started today.